Father, we thank you, um, yeah, just for the privilege to, to gather together and to fellowship, um, and more importantly, to exalt uh, Christ and to make him known. And uh, we thank you that you use the preaching of your word um, to grow us in our affection for Christ. And we thank you that you've given us time tonight um, to study your word. And so as we look into this passage, a passage that is so rich with um, how your word transforms us and makes us fruitful and stable and prosperous, I pray that uh, that would uh, really be impressed on our hearts and we would walk away just with a greater love um, for scripture and uh, that we would want to really make it the center of our lives, that we want to build our lives on it, um, and that because of that, that you would allow us to be fruitful. Um, and so bless our time together. Um, may you speak through me and give us hearts of understanding and humility uh, as we receive from your word. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So let me just introduce what we're going to do for the summer. Um, so for tonight and next week, and then we'll come back to this at the end of summer when we start meeting on Fridays again, we're going to spend some time in the book of Psalms. And as you may know, the Psalms, uh, they functioned as this sort of prayer book. They were used in corporate worship. They were meant to be recited, read out loud. Um, and one thing that I, I really appreciate about the Psalms, and, and one of the reasons why I want to spend time in it this summer, is they teach us how to respond to God. Right? They teach us how to answer God. Um, and I put it that way rather than they teach us how to talk to God because um, when you read throughout the Psalms, everything that the psalmists write, even like the raw stuff, the honest stuff, it's built on this robust doctrine and knowledge of God. Right? They're responding back to God when, uh, in, in light of God's revelation to us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he's a commentator, he puts it like this. He says, the Psalms were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They are not the record of people searching for the meaning of life. They were prayed by people who understood that God had everything to do with them. God, not their feelings, was the center. God, not their souls, was the issue. God, not the meaning of life, was critical. And so as we study the Psalms, again, just these next two weeks, and then we'll come back to it at the end of the summer, um, my hope is that our study would teach us what it looks like, what it sounds like to live in, a, in, in this world, to walk through seasons of hardship and suffering, uh, what it sounds like to ask the difficult questions of life, but to do all of that with God at the center, right? Like these psalmists do, with God at the center. And so tonight, we'll be starting at the very beginning, um, and so if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 1. I mean, this is the appropriate place to start, the very first psalm uh, of the entire Psalter. And most of us already know that as good Christians, we should be consistently spending time in God's word, right? That's like the default application to every message, like be in God's word, read scripture, meditate on scripture. Uh, but let me ask you guys this question. If you really did that, like if you really put that into practice in your life, if you really committed yourself to reading and studying and memorizing and dwelling in God's word, then what do you think your life would look like? Like, what would your life look like if you really put that into practice? Now, whether or not it's something spiritual, I'm sure that we've all, like, done that mental exercise before. Like, we've all visualized uh, the end result of something, of this commitment to doing something consistently over time, right? Uh, the first example that comes to mind for me is exercise, 
Okay, maybe you guys can relate to this. Like, there have been many, many points in my life where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this, like, one thing, like, 15 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day. Um, and, like, I'm going to get so fit. I'm going to get so in shape. Um, I even bought a jump rope. And some of you guys are like, I haven't jumped rope since, like, elementary school. But apparently jump rope is really uh, good for you. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to buy this jump rope. I'm going to jump rope 15 minutes a day. I'm going to get in shape. And maybe you have your own thing, like a diet, um, vitamin, a certain habit, whatever it might be. Uh, but you think to yourself, all right, if I commit to this, right, if I like, take this vitamin, I'm going to live forever. If I do this one thing every single day, it'll shape me, and it'll make me better in this way. Well, I think that's what Psalm 1 does for us. Like It sets before us the end result, the final product of this life that is spent delighting in and meditating on God's word. Psalm 1 gives us a picture of what a commitment to God's word shapes us into. And this picture, you guys might know it already, it's this really awesome and really poetic and really beautiful picture. It's a tree planted by streams of water. It's a picture of fruitfulness and stability and health and prosperity. And so let's read it together. Um, Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, quick summary for you guys. In this psalm, we have two kinds of people. Right, we have the righteous, that's in verses 1 to 3. And we have the wicked, verses 4 to 5. Um, and then there are two outcomes for their way of life. Right? The, the righteous prosper and the wicked perish. That's in verse 6. Okay, that's basically the, the psalm in a nutshell. And it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's not difficult to understand. And so I don't want to overcomplicate it. I think Psalm 1, in some sense, is meant to uh, engage your imagination more than our intellect. It is poetry, after all. Um, I think Psalm 1 is supposed to, uh, we're supposed to appreciate the beauty of this picture that the psalmist paints for us, right? And I, I think it's out of this appreciation, out of this beautiful picture that we're supposed to, to be compelled to want to have our lives look like that. And so let's go through this. I've organized our message around three words, um, just three descriptions of the Psalm 1 type of person. Okay, the first word is this, uh, the psalm, number one, blessed. Psalm 1 type of person is blessed, and that's in verses 1 to 2. Um, the very first word of the very first psalm of the entire Psalter is the word blessed. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word blessed, uh, maybe you think of a hashtag. It's unfortunate that blessed has somehow ended up in the same category as like Jesus t-shirts and like fish bumper stickers and Christian radio. Um, it's like this, I don't know, this like Christian kind of joke almost, right? But in the rest of scripture, blessed speaks of being happy, 
Okay, and it's not just like a surface level type of happiness. It's, it's not just like, oh, what you're supposed to say when someone asks you how you're doing. Blessedness in scripture is talking about this deep-seated happiness and contentment in God. A deep-seated happiness and contentment in God. And here in these two, uh, first two verses, the blessed man is characterized by two things. Right? First, he is characterized by what he doesn't do. Okay, what he doesn't do, what he refrains from. Um, look at verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, if you look at those verbs, some commentators, they'll point out that there is this progression of those verbs. Right? It moves from bad to worse. Um, so just imagine this with me. First, you compromise a little bit. And maybe you decide to like associate with or hang out with these people that you know aren't good for you, right? Like you know you shouldn't be hanging out with them. And so you start hanging out with them more and more. And before you know it, you find yourself engaging in the same activities that they do. Like, I think that's the picture that we get here. And the big idea here is that uh, this blessedness or this holiness involves the totality of your life. Um, look at those words there, walking, standing, sitting, counsel, way, seat. All of these words have to do with your thinking, with your behaving, and with your belonging. And what Psalm 1 says is that in every area of your life, the righteous person separates himself from that which is wicked and harmful. Okay, I like how um, Richard Baker, he, he describes the comprehensiveness of this. He says, he says this, negative precepts are in some cases more absolute and peremptory than affirmatives. For to say that have walked in the counsel of the godly might not be sufficient. For he might walk in the counsel of the godly and yet walk in the counsel of the ungodly too. Not both indeed at once, but both at several times. Where now this negative clears him at all times. Now I think this shows us what might be uh, maybe kind of an obvious but maybe overlooked point, which is that blessedness in Scripture involves the rejection of certain things, right? It involves us saying no to certain things. Um, and I'd say that's overlooked maybe because that's not what our culture teaches us, right? That's not what our culture teaches us about blessing. Like, why would we say no to something if we don't have to? Why would we deprive ourselves of certain activities or pleasures or freedoms or forms of entertainment? But think about this. Ever since the beginning, like even think back to the Garden of Eden, God has intended for us to practice saying no to certain things, right? In order that we might be blessed, in order that we might say yes to something better. And so if verse one is what the blessed man doesn't do, right? It's what he says no to, it's what he refrains from. Um, then what does he do? Verse two <coughs> says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Um, I want you to notice when you read through this Psalm that this is the one active thing that this righteous man does. Okay, the, the other verses they give descriptions about this righteous man, right? It says he is like, or he is blessed. He is like a tree. Um, even in verse one, it tells us what he doesn't do. It gives us the negative, right? He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. 
but what is the difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked? Like, what is that one defining mark of the righteous man? It's in verse 2. Since his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Like, that is the difference. And so, first off, if you want to be growing in your relationship with God, like maybe that's a goal that you've made for yourself this summer with maybe your extra time. If you want to be growing in your relationship with God, then you need to be in God's word. That's what Psalm 1 says. Like that is the contrasting statement to everything negative that the psalmist has just mentioned in verse 1. And so you can't expect to grow in holiness apart from spending time in God's word. Now, I want to talk about some of these words here, okay? Um, the, the word for law of the Lord, it's Torah. You guys might have heard that word before, Torah. Um, and for the original audience, this was pretty much all they had. They had the law. I think for us, we can simply understand it as God's word, um, but specifically with this emphasis on God's instruction, okay, God's instruction, now, notice what this righteous man does with God's law or with the Torah. It says he delights in it and he meditates on it. Right? He delights in it, he meditates on it. Those two words, delight and meditate. Now, I don't know about you, but the first word that comes to mind when I think about the law uh, is not the word delight. Right? We, uh, we, the verbs that we use probably when it comes to the law are we abide by the law. Right? Or like we respect the law. But for me, I wouldn't immediately think like, oh, I delight in the law. Right? Like I don't delight driving the speed limit. Or I don't delight, um, I don't know, whatever, fill in the blank law. Right? I do it because it's a law. I do it because I don't want to get a speeding ticket. Right? I abide by the law. And for us, when we think uh, that word delight, we think ideas like desire or freedom or joy. Like, you don't have to tell me to do something that I delight in because I'm going to do it out of my sheer enjoyment of that thing. But when we think the word law, we think like something pretty different, don't we? We think boundaries or order or restraint. Like, that's what comes to mind when you think about the word law. And so the question is, how do we come to delight in the law of the Lord? Or in other words, how do we come to delight in or love having God tell us what to do? But like, that's basically what it means, right? To delight in law. It's, I love for God to tell me what to do. Now, there's a lot that I think we could say here, um, but just let me mention one idea for now. When we think about the law of the Lord, or when we think about Scripture's instructions, we can't separate that from the one who gives us those instructions. Okay, we can't separate the law from the law giver. Why? Because what he tells us to do, how he tells us to live, what he requires of us, all of that is a reflection of who he is. And I think, um, I think parenting is a good example of this. Sometimes, or, or usually, the best direction for understanding isn't like, oh, let me study the law and then let me, let me understand more about the lawgiver. Right? That works sometimes. But I think more often than not, it's the other way around, isn't it? Like, especially when we don't know as much as they do. We understand and we trust and we obey what we are told to do in light of the person who is telling us to do it. And so for us, 
when we know that it's a good and a wise and a loving God who is the one who is instructing us what to do. Even when we don't always agree, even when we don't understand why. We know who the lawgiver is, then we're better able to delight in being instructed by him. And ultimately, that's what separates someone uh, who knows God from someone who doesn't. Tim Keller said this. He said, it's easy to mistake a morally restrained heart for a spiritually changed heart. It's easy to mistake a morally restrained heart for a spiritually changed heart. Anyone can refrain from certain things, right? Anyone can say, I won't do this, I won't do that. But to truly delight in the law of God requires this spiritual transformation, right? It requires us to do so in the context of relationship. All right, so that's, that's the first thing, delighting in the law. The second thing that this righteous man does with God's law is he meditates on it. Meditates on it. And you might have heard this before, um, but biblical meditation is very different from the modern or the Eastern concept of meditation. Okay, when you think of um, meditation, you might think of like relaxing, right? You think of empty your mind, right? Like downward dog, whatever. Like <laughs> yoga meditation, just don't think anything, right? Just relax. But meditation in scripture isn't emptying your mind. It's actively filling your mind. It's a consistent uh, commitment over time. Right? It says you do it day and night. Um, I, I think one of the best illustrations I've heard of this is, um, I, I didn't come up with this, but Will Smith, uh, he, he did an interview, right? And they asked him about uh, his, his show, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You guys ever watched that show? It was like years before some of you guys. But... Um, <laughs> But in this interview, he said that he actually hated watching the first, like, several episodes of Fresh Prince um, because uh, it was the beginning of the show, and he, he wanted to do a good job so badly in preparation for that show that he memorized all of the lines. Like, not just his, but, like, everyone else's. And so uh, if you watch closely in some of those first scenes, apparently, like, you can see him mouthing some of the words. Like, even when it's not his turn, you can see him just moving his mouth because he knows everyone else's lines. I think that's kind of what meditation looks like, where, like, you've studied it so much, you've, you've dwelt on it so much that you can't contain yourself. Like, you can't help, uh, it can't help but come out because you filled yourself with it. I think it's interesting that the psalmist uh, puts these two verbs side by side. He says, delight and meditate. And delight is, is almost like this spontaneous response to something, right? Something beautiful, something valuable. But when you think of meditation, you think of something that requires effort, that is careful and deliberate, that is sustained thought and focus. Meditation uh, takes hard work, especially in our distracted age. Like, I think if we, like, we're really bad at meditation. Um, to meditate on scripture isn't just, uh, like, to mentally chant the words over and over again in your head. Meditating on God's word means absorbing its, absorbing its truth. Meditation involves, uh, like, really grasping and wrestling with, how does this affect me? How does this make a difference in my life? <clears throat> Meditation involves asking the questions, how does this apply to me? How does this change the way that I live? 
I know that for many of you, especially uh, many of you are part of like your campus fellowships and things like that, you get a lot of intake of God's word, right? Whether that's in small groups or Bible studies or you listen to multiple sermons a week. Let me ask you, what's one practical thing that maybe you need to do in order to meditate on scripture better? Like what's one thing you need to do to absorb God's word better? Do you need to memorize scripture? Do you need to maybe read a smaller portion of scripture so you can focus on it more deeply? Now these two things, meditating on God's word and delighting in God's word, um, I want you to realize they work hand in hand. If you're having a hard time delighting in scripture, then let me tell you, commit yourself to meditating on it. Like chew on it over and over and over again. And as you come to know and you, you trust God's words more and more, God grows us in our delight over it, our delight in it. They realize that meditation takes time. I mean, the picture that the psalmist gives us is this tree putting down roots, right? Like that's a long process. As we'll see later, it leads to depth. It leads to stability and fruit and delight. But at the same time, I want you to realize the flip side of this too, that we meditate on that which we delight in. We meditate on that which we delight in. In other words, you already meditate on something. The things that you daydream about, the things that you are thinking about when you're by yourself or driving in the car in traffic. Maybe for some of you, you meditate on your future and what it might look like. You meditate about your significant other or a certain hobby that you enjoy. My point is, we live in a world where we are uh, influenced by someone or something, right? We're, we're meditating on something or someone, and the world is pointing us in one direction or the other. I think that's the contrast that the psalmist is trying to point out. You're either influenced and you're governed by the world around you, or you are influenced and you're governed by the word of God. You will form your worldview either from scripture, the word of God, or something outside of the word of God. Um, Pastor Kim, he talks about this a lot. And the phrase that he uses often is feeling your faith. Right? He says you are either feeling the fire of the worship of your idols, or you are feeling the fire of the worship of Christ. And if you've spent your waking hours meditating on and hanging around the wrong people and influences, then of course it will affect you. Of course it will come out in one way or another. But if you're spending time meditating on God's word, then you will find more and more of biblical truth guiding your thoughts and your actions and the way that you respond to certain things. So that's the first thing, blessed. These next points are shorter. Point number two, planted planted. Verses three and four, we have uh, these two contrasting pictures. Okay, it's two contrasting pictures of the righteous and the wicked. Um, In verse three, the psalmist says, the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. I just want you to try to visualize that image in your head for a second. It's this picture of life, vitality, flourishing. Um, The tree is fruitful in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither in whatever season. All that he does, he prospers. Why? Because he's planted by streams of water. 
Right? That's the difference. He's planted by streams of water. He's rooted and grounded somewhere that can provide for him, that can sustain his life. He will never have to worry about having enough. He will never have to worry about its health, even when there's no visible fruit, because its roots have reached deeply into the ground. It's constantly drawing life uh, from, from its source, from, from the water. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 gives us almost the exact same picture and says that the man who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. You get that? The tree is still subject to the seasons, right? It still goes through drought and this and that. It's not always bearing fruit. It's not always productive or green but it's planted by the riverbank. It's planted by the water. Its roots have access to a constant stream, a constant source of life, even when the heat and the drought comes. And even more than that, as we drink of the nutrients of God's word, what happens? It produces fruit in our lives. It's not just this like, oh, I spend time in God's word and I like feel close to God. It actually changes us. We're not just transporting water from the roots to the branches unchanged. No, it produces things in us like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the fruit that God's word produces in us is not just beautiful to admire, but it's life-giving to those around us. It blesses those around us. Um, Eugene Eugene Peterson, again, he describes it like this. He says, The tree is no mere channel that pipes the water unchanged from one place to another, but a living organism which absorbs it to produce in due course something new and delightful, proper to its kind and time. Now, what about the wicked? Verse 4, it gives us a different picture, right? It says, They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Um, Chaff is a pretty common illustration throughout scripture, but if you don't know what it is, it's the outer shell or the outer husk of uh, the seed covering for for grain seed, okay? And uh, what would happen is it's separated from the grain, which is the valuable part, during threshing, and it was weightless, it was useless, and so what people would do is to just throw it in the air, and the wind would sweep away the chaff, and the grain, which was the valuable, valuable part, would fall to the ground and be gathered, Okay, um, and so what is the difference between the two, right? Between this, this tree planted by streams of water, the righteous, and the wicked who are swept away like chaff. It's not the circumstances, right? It's not the seasons, it's not the wind. Both endure the same rhythm of seasons. The difference between the two is where you are planted, where you are rooted, right? Where you've made your home. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He says, build your house on the sand and it's going to collapse when the winds come. But you build your house on the rock of God's word and it'll stand when the winds come. I think the one, th- or one thing that strikes me about the contrast between these two pictures is like just this sort of busyness and restlessness of the wicked and then you see this like fruitful quietness of the righteous. The place that we need to be, the best position that we can take is where? It's planted right next to the river of God's word. The wicked, they're characterized by their scoffing 
Um, if you read throughout the Psalms, uh, the scoffers, they say things like, what does God know? Or like, who is God? How can God rule my life? They seek freedom and independence. But blessedness for the righteous here comes when we're in this place of absolute dependence. Right? Absolute dependence, constant connectedness to the river, to the stream of life. And so let me ask you, is that true of you? Like, is that true of your life? When you wake up in the morning, are you aware of your desperate need to be planted near the source of life? Where are you planted? Are you well positioned when the wind comes and the seasons change? Will you survive? Like, will you still be standing? As college students, your season of life is one in which you were in many ways unrooted. Like you've been maybe rooted, quote unquote rooted for the first 18 years of your life, right? And now is maybe the first time that you're free, uh, the first time that you are away from home. And especially with the trend nowadays, your 20s are like this period of life where you shouldn't be rooted, right? Because like to be rooted is to be boring. Like you're supposed to go and fly free. But let me tell you, Beacon, strive to be rooted in the word of God. Strive to be rooted in scripture. Life might bring you here or there, but don't move away from being planted next to the water of scripture. Let me say this as well. As college students, you are taught to focus on the external and what you can see. And it might be really obvious, like um, the brands that you wear, your physical appearance, this or that. Or it can be more subtle, your reputation, um, even fruitfulness in your faith. Right? We're taught to like just automatically look at those things. But I think this passage shows us that what's important and what really, really determines your health isn't what you can see on the outside, at least not always. Right? What really determines your health is what's there underneath, where you're rooted, how, how deep your roots are dug. See, I think there's something to be said about those brothers and sisters in Christ who just like really suffer well. Maybe you know someone like that in your life. They experience some, sorma, some form of significant suffering, whether that's like a serious sickness, um, loss of a loved one, a broken relationship. And it's not that like as they're going through that, everything is just rainbows and butterflies, like there's no issues, there's no emotions. These people can be honest and raw about their real and their significant suffering. But there are those people who just like don't fall apart. Right? Like they're not left completely devastated. That suffering hurts, but it doesn't destroy them. It doesn't just completely devastate them. And it even produces surprising fruit in their lives. And how does that happen? I mean, I think that is the picture that this psalm is talking about. They've sunk their roots deep into the ground. They've spent years of their life constantly meditating on scripture, thinking their thoughts after God, drinking from the water of God's word. And what this psalm tells us, uh, and this psalm tells us what happens, right? When the drought comes, its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Because they've dug their roots deep into the ground. Years of years of spending time in God's word. All right, last point here. Number three, known, known. This is verses five and six. In these last two verses, the psalmist gives us the outcomes for these two kinds of people. Uh, Look at verse five. It says, therefore, 
the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, when it says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, uh, it's, it's kind of playing off of that picture of the chaff in verse 4. Uh, I think Psalm 130, verse 3, says something similar. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand in light of God's judgment? It's talking about being swept away. Um, it says that sinners will not stand in the con- congregation of the righteous. So in a world where maybe the line between right and wrong is like increasingly blurred, it says that God will separate one from the other. And he will make it perfectly clear which category people belong to. And again, I think this is another of those maybe like seemingly obvious, but maybe overlooked truths. Uh, but it's this, that the wicked will perish. And I think like we need to be reminded of that. And scripture does that for us. Um, I think of a passage like Proverbs 5, where uh, in, in Proverbs 5, God kind of like peels back the curtain of, uh, specifically in that passage, sexual sin. And he shows us everything that is going on, including the future consequences. And you think of, the counsel of the wicked here, right? What, is, what do they do? They front load sin. They make it look harmless and appealing. Like it won't hurt you that much. And I think here, like passages like this, where it tells us what happens in the end, scripture shows us, no, like sin is going to kill you, right? Like this is the consequence of what will happen if you keep going in that direction. So the wicked will perish. And that's meant to make us flee from the way of the wicked. Look what happens to the righteous. Verse 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. When we think of um, getting to know God's word, the goal is to know God better, right? Like we, we get to know about God in scripture and not just that, uh, we get to know him in relationship. But here in verse 6, the Lord is the one who takes the initiative in knowing. It says he knows us. We move from from knowing about him to knowing him to being known by him. I think one implication of this is that if God knows us as completely and personally as he does, then what he has said to us in his word is the best thing for us. Like if he knows our ways, if he knows what is best for us, then that is the thing that we need to be going to for how to live our lives. We just like think about how often we think we know what's best for ourselves. Uh, and we think we, like, we know what is best. We think we know what's the wisest decision. And so we don't want to listen to anyone else, right? We don't want to take their advice. But think about what you think you know and like the opinions that maybe you might've had even just last year. And think about how those things have changed. Um, when you were young, McDonald's was like the best meal ever, right? But as you've grown older, you're like, why would I eat at McDonald's except out of necessity, right? Except in college, somehow you've reverted back to McDonald's. <laughs> when texting first came out, everyone was like, why would I text if I can just call? And nowadays we're like, why would we call if we can just text? Right? We change all the time. We think we know what is best, but we change all the time. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. If that is the case, then we need to be going to him to tell us what's best for us. We need to be going to him to tell us how to live. Um, I I love what J.A. Packer says about being known by God. He says, 
What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. If that is a picture of what it is to be known by God, then we need to be going to him to teach us how to live our lives. Let's bring this to a close. I I said earlier um, that this psalm is pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward. Um, The righteous, they delight in, they meditate on God's word, and they are stable, fruitful, and blessed. The wicked, they reject God and his word, and they are swept away, and they perish in the end. And Maybe you're sitting here right now, and you're thinking the same question that I did as I was studying this. Does it really work that way? I'm sure this psalm is simple, it's straightforward, but isn't this a little too simplistic? Like righteous people prosper, wicked people perish. Is that really all there is? And if that question is on your mind, then know that you are in good company. And if you read through the rest of the Psalms, you see the other biblical authors wrestling with that same question. We, we, we read the honest reflections of people struggling with things like, why are the wicked rich and prospering? Why uh, is my righteousness in vain? Like, is it even worth it? And so there's that tension there, right? There's the tension between the picture of Psalm 1 and this like really fruitful and stable tree and the reality of this fallen world that we live in. And when it comes to this tension, I think Psalm 1, like it needs to serve as our anchor. It needs to serve as our true north. Psalm 1 is the compass that directs and shapes our prayers and frustrations and complaints and laments. Psalm 1 teaches us, don't interpret things based on your circumstances or how things appear. Go back to what God has said that he will do. There's another source of tension when it comes to this psalm, isn't there? It's the tension of our own failure to do what it says. I mean, it's, the psalm is really clear, right? There are only two categories of people, the righteous and the wicked. Here's what the righteous person does. Here's what the wicked person does. And when we read this, if we are honest with ourselves, we're more like the wicked than the righteous, aren't we? Like we would probably fall in the category of the wicked rather than the righteous. We've walked in the counsel of the wicked. We've stood in the way of sinners. We've sat in the seat of scoffers. And so according to this psalm, what's going to happen when we stand in God's judgment? Like if the basis of our standing before God was whether or not we've walked in the footsteps of this blessed man of Psalm 1, then we've all failed. We've all fallen short. I think our failure points to the one who did it perfectly. And that one is Jesus Christ. He made the law of the Lord his delight. He meditated on it day and night. And yet we know what happened to him, right? He who didn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, who did not stand in the way of sinners, who did not sit in the seat of scoffers, he was numbered as one of them as he hung and he died on the cross. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous, wasn't known by the Father. He was forsaken by him. He was crushed before God's judgment. See, if there was anyone who had the right to wrestle with this picture and this promise of Psalm 1, it was Jesus. Right? God, are you sure that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish? Like, he was the one who had the right to ask that question. But because of him, as we who deserve to be cursed are blessed. And Jesus Christ secures our blessing for us. He allows us to be known by God, not on the basis of our own righteous living, but on the basis of his righteous life. And that changes how we approach scripture, doesn't it? Like we don't read it, we don't study it and meditate on it and delight in it in order to get God's blessing, in order to make ourselves more approved before God. No, we, we get God's blessing because of Christ and we are led to delight in his word. As people on this side of the cross, when we meditate on God's word, we, didn't, we delight not only in God's instruction to us, but in, in his salvation for us. That when we meditate on God's word, we behold the person of Jesus. That's who we get to know. That's who we meditate on. And so I, I, pray, I pray, guys, that that would be um, our goal this summer, our resolution to meditate on scripture, to get to know the person of Jesus, to trust God that the, the person who was planted by streams of water is, is the one who is blessed. I want to close by just reading this quote. Um, it talks about scripture, and I love this quote. Um, it's kind of long, uh, but this is just a really fitting uh, way to close. It's by a pastor named Jeff Thomas. He says, Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It is not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The Apostle Peter said that there were some things hard to be understood in the epistles of Paul. I'm glad that he wrote those words because I have felt that often. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by, and imperceptibly there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small, because increasingly the God of the Bible will, be, will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer, and then you will not need the Bible anymore. Because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Father, we thank you for your word and that it's not simply uh, this religious duty or ritual that you've asked us to do, um, but it's your very revelation to us that in it we get to know you better. Um, because of it, Lord, you make us more stable and fruitful um, to navigate through the different seasons of this life. And in it we get to no salvation, the gospel, and your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that 
um, yeah, just for the summer ahead of us, that uh, we would be people who are planted by streams of water, uh, that we would uh, yeah, make it our aim to, to position ourselves uh, in that place where we're so dependent on you for life. And I pray that as we are in that place, as we are connected and abiding in you, that you would produce uh, much fruit in our lives. So, Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.